As we come to God's Word this morning, we are back in Luke chapter 22. Let me invite you to, uh, to turn there. Uh, this is Luke chapter uh, 22, verses, um, let's see, we're going to, starting at verse 47, uh, reading through verse 62. And so we are going back um, to our study of Luke 22. We thank uh, Pastor Craig for being with us uh, last week, uh, and we are uh, grateful for uh, his being able to come and minister to us as I was away on the youth retreat. But where are we in Luke 22? Well, we have, for the last couple of weeks, been walking through this most consequential and influential of days in the history of the world, uh, beginning with the... uh, uh, the, the celebration, the first celebration of the Lord's Supper and the celebration of the Passover uh, that Jesus had with His disciples in the upper room. Uh, and then looking a couple of weeks ago at the uh, prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and how He freely chose to embrace what was coming so that we might be able to experience the forgiveness that would come from it. And this morning, we are immediately on the heels of that prayer. Jesus was talking with His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is where they, this is where they found themselves. As they were still speaking, the crowd came to arrest Jesus. So let me invite you to stand if you're able as I read these words, and when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is Luke chapter 22 starting at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out, against, uh, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, 
Now, as you see, there are two incidents here, two separate incidents that are often, again, treated separately. You have the first occurring immediately after Jesus is talking with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, actually interrupting his conversation that he was having. And the second occurring after Jesus had been taken and uh, examined by some of the, the Jewish leaders in the palace of the high priest. Now, Luke arranges it like he does with these two incidents right next to each other so that we can see, I think, how these acts of betrayal and acts of denial are really more similar and in some ways more different than you might originally think. He puts them next to each other so we can see the, we can see the contrast. So as we prepare for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, this is how I want to consider the meaning of what we just read. I want to consider this with two points, just quickly kind of looking at, okay, this is what happened in the garden, this was the betrayal of Judas, this is the denial of Peter, and then I want to actually spend most of the time going through a number of lessons that I think we can draw from these two incidents, how we can see and apply how they connect with one another, how they're similar in many respects, and how they are at the end very different. So a very simple outline, the betrayal of of Jesus by Judas, that's 47 to 53 that we read. The denial of Jesus by Peter, and that's verses 54 to 62. And then we're going to spend the majority of the time looking at some lessons for us. Now first, the betrayal. This is the account of Jesus' arrest in the garden where he had been praying, talking with his disciples. And there's several different characters here, right? There's, there's Jesus, of course, and he knows what's coming. He doesn't seem surprised by what occurs. There are the disciples recently awakened from their nap that they had been taken while Jesus was praying. Uh, there are the Roman and the Jewish authorities that come from the other accounts in Matthew and in Mark and in John. We can deduce that there were both Jewish and Roman soldiers who were there, Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers. And then there's Judas. He's really the main focus here, at least in our kind of look at the betrayal of, of Jesus. And there's Judas. Judas, we see, is noted as one of the twelve. That's not an unintentional thing to point out showing the intimacy of his relationship with Jesus, a reminder of the position that he, that he enjoyed. And Judas had a prearranged sign with the group accompanying him. He says, the guy that I greet with a kiss, that's the guy. Now, you might say, was that really necessary? But he had to do it that way. And the answer is, well, yeah, probably, because in one sense it was necessary for him to specifically go up to the guy because they may not have recognized who Jesus was. I remember it was dark. It was, hard to, it was hard to see. Jesus was known by many by his reputation, but he, you know, not everyone would have seen him. This was a day before cameras or social media. It wasn't as if his name was all over the news. There weren't even newspapers to kind of print this kind of stuff or pictures reporting on Jesus' ministry. So there was a practical element as to why some sort of a sign would have been necessary. But even more than that, and we'll talk a little bit more in the lessons learned in a minute, but there's something sadly symbolic about this kiss showing the, the depth of the evil in Judas's betrayal. So that's Judas. That's the betrayal. There's other interesting things that we could talk about in that passage. But now let's move to Peter. We have from Judas betrayal. Now we have from Peter denial. Now remember, as you read through this section, you may... You might remember what Jesus had said to Peter at that last supper, at the last celebration of the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, when he said, Peter, the rooster it will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
And of course, exactly, that's exactly what we read happens, right? First, you have a servant girl, takes a good look at him and says, this guy was with Jesus. And a little bit later, you got someone else come up to Peter and say, you're one of them, aren't you? Meaning one of Jesus' followers. And then about an hour later, someone else observes that he, that he must have been with Jesus because he had given himself away, presumably by his Galilean accent, and that, that he was with Jesus. And each time this happens... Peter flatly denies that he knows or has anything to do with Jesus. The last time, even more vehemently, calling down oaths and curses. So that's the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. It's the denial of Jesus by Peter. Now, what do we learn from this? And this is really where I want to spend the majority of the time. I don't always do this, give you a long list of of applications, but sometimes it's the most helpful way. And there's lots of things that I think we can learn from these two incidents, but here's my list. Here's the first lesson that these two events teach us. Be very careful of trusting yourself. In other words, it's all very different when the shooting starts. <laughs> all right, this is what I mean. There's an old, um, an old 1989 movie called Glory. It starred Matthew Broderick. It's the Real-life story of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, Civil War officer in the Union Army, who was given command of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, one of the first African-American regiments of the Civil War. And there's this scene when the major, under Colonel Shaw's command, is training the recruits to shoot their newly issued rifles. And everyone is laughing, and they're having a pretty good time. They're cheering on one of these Soldiers, Private Juniper Sharts, who's a pretty good shot, and they put up the target, these bottles with water in them, and he's hitting them every time, and every time he hits them, they whoop and they holler, and they're all excited. And up comes Colonel Shaw, and he compliments the private on his shooting, and the private says with pride, squirrel hunting, sir. And Colonel Shaw says, reload your weapon. Private Sharts starts to do that. He takes out the powder and cartridge and he dumps it down the barrel. He takes out the rod and he pats it down. And as he's doing it and going through the motions, Colonel Shaw says, faster. And he says it again, faster. And he says it louder, faster. And Sharts starts to fumble a little bit with what he's doing. He finally gets it loaded and he says, discharge your weapon. And he quickly raises it, aims, fires, misses the target, presumably. And Shaw immediately screams, reload. And Shaw asks the major while he's doing this, while Private Schartz is doing this, ask the major, give me your revolver. And he stands behind the head of the private and shoots the gun into the air as he's yelling, faster, and he fires the weapon, faster, fires the weapon. And finally, Private Shaw, who just a few minutes ago was a star marksman, just clumsily drops his rifle on the ground because the added stress and screaming and sound of the revolver had completely disoriented him. He didn't seem quite as ready for the battle as he had thought just a few minutes ago. Colonel Shaw turns to his major, hands him the revolver, and says, teach them to shoot properly, major. You see the point Shaw was making? You might think that you're all that, but when the shooting actually starts, you aren't ready to stand up to the stress of real battle. These scenes with Judas and Peter are uncomfortable. They ought to be uncomfortable for us to read because they challenge the assumption that we're ready to fight on our own. Right? And here's the lesson. Don't trust yourself with just simply your religious experience 
as the measure of your heart and the measure of your readiness. Think about Judas. Judas is a little bit easier maybe to discard, but he had been around Jesus, remember, for years, not just as a casual acquaintance. He wasn't just a groupie who followed Jesus on tour. Judas was part of the trusted crew. He's called one of the twelve. He heard Jesus teach. He had been witness to Jesus' miracles. He had been given meaningful opportunities to, to serve. He had even had his feet washed by Jesus. And even Jesus' last words to Judas that should have pricked his conscience, tender words, you come to me with a kiss, reminded Judas of the relationship that they had enjoyed. As if that were enough, but it certainly wasn't. And it wasn't the fault of Jesus. It wasn't because, it wasn't because Jesus had failed in his job somehow. It wasn't because Judas hadn't been in church, that he hadn't been taught in Sunday school. Now, don't misunderstand. It's good to be in church. It's right to be in in Sunday school, right? It's better to be in the presence of the true teaching of Jesus than not. But that is not just simply being among the people of God. That is not in itself any ultimate reason for confidence. Now, on the other hand, right, some of you might look at Peter and consider Peter and say, okay, well, Judas, I can write off, right? But, but, But even Peter, who genuinely did love Jesus, we see he shouldn't have trusted in his, in his love to be able to resist temptation either, right? I think we should believe Peter when he said at the Last Supper that he was willing to go to, to jail, to go to prison for Jesus, that he was, he was willing to, 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 to die even for Jesus. I believe that he was sincere, that he meant it. But sincerity and well-placed confidence are two different things, right? Peter trusted too much in himself. You see that even in this account. He didn't come with a plan of resistance. Jesus had told him in the garden, pray with me so that you might be able to stand when the temptation comes. And we see it all along. Peter fell asleep. He didn't pray. Right? Here he is in the, in the, in the, in the court of the high priest. Okay, there's a certain amount of boldness in that. But he doesn't even think wisely through how to do some of those things. He comes into the firelight. He's obviously talking so they hear his his accent. He presumes too much upon himself. And he reminds us that even the most privileged of saints is still poor and weak and in great need of God even on his best of days. That's the first lesson. Be careful trusting yourself and and your readiness for battle. Second lesson, small steps lead to big falls. This is what we were just talking about in a sense. We don't know all the details for Jesus. We have to assume that there were moments when he actually did admire Jesus, where he wanted to be a part of the movement. But like all sinful men, there were moments of disillusionment when he doubted, when he wasn't sure about the whole thing that Jesus was doing. And they probably started small thoughts that he could quickly brush away, but he didn't deal with them when they were small. Didn't bring the doubts to Jesus. So they got bigger until he got to the point where he became convinced that selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver was a good idea. Now, similarly for for Peter, we talked about some of these already, but he overestimated his own abilities. He didn't give himself to to prayer. He, he, (laughs) He thought in some way that the swordsmanship, and we later, we learn in the other Gospels, in the Gospel of John, that this swordsman, the guy that pulls out the the sword, this was Peter, Right? He presumed that the swordsmanship of a fisherman was going to be able to take on the Roman soldiers who were there. 
He was wild. He was impetuous. He didn't have wisdom as he came into the high priest's court. He didn't pray as he should. They all put him slowly and step by step in a position of weakness, in a position of anxiety, and totally unprepared when the testing came. They start small and they grow big. Now, by contrast, the way to fight this is by watching your footing as you go through your Christian life every step of the way, watching each step so that you're able along the journey to stay upright and not end up on your back. Start small. Use the small things, the small areas of obedience, and they then lead to the larger. It's like the old pithy British quip. Men will take care of the pence and the pound will take care of itself. Right? Take care of the small and the bigger will fall into place. That's the second lesson. Now, third lesson. The more intimate the relationship, the more devastating the betrayal. Why did Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? Right? Why? The musician Michael Card asked the question like this. He said, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show that's not what a kiss is for? Now, we don't have an exhaustive answer to such a profound question, but the answer that Michael Card gives in this song is it's one of the things that it shows us is how close this relationship was and then, therefore, how deep the betrayal was. Card writes, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain, and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. Now, this is helpful to us as a lesson because it helps us relate Perhaps as we experience times of betrayal, times when people we know maybe have turned against us, and it shows us that the deeper the relationship, the deeper the pain. For example, I've heard someone kind of explain it like this, and it makes sense. If someone comes up to me, you know, who's a, you know, maybe they're a first-time visitor. Maybe if you're a first-time visitor, maybe this is what you're going to want to do to me after the service. Come up and say, that was absolutely horrible. That was terrible. I'm never coming back. I never want to be here again. I know that's going to, I mean, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll hurt. And, and it'll cause me to a certain extent to sort of question, did I, did I say something? Did I, you know, what did I do? I mean, it, it will cause a little bit of introspection. But at the end of the day, if I don't know you, if the relationship isn't that strong, I'll probably be able to move on relatively quickly from something like that. And so would you. But if a friend, someone who I had known for, you know, for a little bit of time, were to come up to me and says, I don't want anything to, do, anything to do with you anymore. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. I'm never going to talk to you again. That would hurt, right? And to a greater degree. Now, keep pushing the level of intimacy. If your spouse, if one of your children were to come to you and say that very same thing, I'm done with you. I want nothing else to do with you. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Right? That pain will be at, the, at an even more deep level. Now, I'm not making light of that for purposes of illustration because some of you have had that exact experience. You know the depth of that pain. And so what I want you to take from this is look at your Savior who knows the depth of betrayal and find comfort in Him. The deeper the relationship, the deeper the pain. Both Judas and Peter were on the inside. They were among the closest of relationships Jesus had. And so if you've ever experienced betrayal at that level, then you need to understand that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Now, fourth lesson. As deep as the betrayal and the denial of Jesus is, the depth of God's grace is even deeper. 
All right, I mentioned that even the offer of this grace to, to Judas is, is there in some way, in the way that Jesus speaks to him in the, the garden. But it's, his heart is just so hard and, re, and rejects it. But the clearest lesson of where we see the depth of this grace is to look at Peter. Go back and look at verse 62, the very last verse we read. It's immediately after Peter denied knowing Jesus for the third time, and it says that the Lord turned and looked at Jesus. Now, it doesn't say exactly how they saw each other, how they were positioned, whether Jesus was in some gallery kind of off to the side in the high priest's house, and he looked out, whether he was being led through the courtyard at that moment. But this is a real look. This is not some metaphorical conviction, you know, like Peter was just kind of in his guilt, sort of imagining the look of of Jesus. This is an actual look. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time, the image that kind of pops immediately to someone's head when they think about this look is that it's a mean look. You know, it was the mean look, right? Kids, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten from your parents the look? The look, right? I have to say, moms are typically better at the look than dads are. They know the look, right? And, 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 and I think they learn it in mom school or something like that. Like, I mean, it, it, it is the look that is used, like, you know, when mom's on the phone, and talking to someone or she's doing something else that prevents her from, from using words. And the words would go something like this if she could say them. Knock that off right now. Or by the time I get off this phone, the look will be the worst of your problems. Right? That's the look. That's what we sometimes imagine this look being here. Jesus turning and looking at Peter with the look. That's not what's happening here. Now, I think there was a tinge of disappointment, no doubt, in the, in, the, in the face of Jesus. But you have to understand that this look was the look of extreme mercy and extreme grace. Think about this. As Peter drops to his absolute lowest moment, he does not look up and discover that Jesus is nowhere to be found. He doesn't catch a glimpse of the back of Jesus' head through a window. It's at that moment that Jesus turned and looked. Jesus finds Peter and turns his face toward him. And this look is not a fleeting glance, right? The sense of the Greek word that's used here is one of steadfastness and attention. He locked eyes. You remember the most famous of blessings that could be pronounced upon the Jewish people? It was called the ironic blessing, not ironic, ironic as in Aaron. Right? It's from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The blessing of grace and peace was to come to the people when the Lord would lift up his countenance upon them. It would come as the Lord would turn to them and look upon them. Now, it would be good to ask, could something like this have been for Peter after his denial? Could he really have deserved something like this? So surely, this, is, this kind of look is only something that the good people could expect to, to get. And if you go back to number 6, you'll see that, the, that there is a section right before this blessing in number 6 where God is giving instructions to a particular group of very religious people who were taking special vows. But when you get to verse 22 in number 6, it starts a completely new thought. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless 
the people of Israel, not just this special group of religious people who had taken special vows. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And in case you forgot, the people of Israel were not a perfect people. They were a people who did and who would frequently turn away from God. They were deniers of the power of God on a regular basis. They, at many times, acted as if they didn't know who God was. They wanted, many times, to blend in with the crowd of the nations around them, just like Peter. And God said to Aaron, or to Moses, to tell Aaron to bless the people with these words, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And so Jesus lifts up his face and turns and looks at Peter, and Peter is struck to the core. Over his sin? Certainly. It says specifically that he remembered the saying of Jesus that he would deny Jesus three times. All right, you remember the conversation from earlier in Luke 22? Jesus knew that Peter was going to do this, but it came immediately after Jesus' promise that he had prayed that Peter would not fall, that he wouldn't ultimately fail, that the promise that, that Jesus had made to him was that, was that Peter would ultimately turn from this denial. There would be a mission for him when he had turned again. Right? Jesus was present, prevented from using words at that moment, but a look was all that he needed to convey not just the reminder of Peter's sin, but the reminder of the promise that he had made. J.C. Ryle says it was a sermon in that look that Peter would never forget. The blessing from number six was not something that anyone could give, you know. Right? Remember, Moses gave the job to Aaron, who was the priest, Aaron and his sons. In other words, it was a blessing that needed to come through a mediator, and that's exactly what's happening here. Right? If this look at Peter had come from a God who had no interest in grace, it would have been a scary look. But this is the face of the mediator who is turning to Jesus. Jesus is in his hour of darkness, right? And Peter had denied him. Yes, but it is the denials of Peter and the denials of me and the desire, denials of you that brought Jesus to this hour. And so he is, at the very same time, the giver of this blessing and its mediator. He is the priest and the sacrifice that makes the blessing possible. And his looking at Peter, reminding Peter of his failings, comforting him in his sins so that Peter can be reminded of the promise that Jesus had made is the greatest act of love, the greatest act of grace that he could show to Peter at that moment. Which leads us to the last lesson. If you've been confronted with all these things, if you are now Peter in this situation that have seen through the look of Jesus not just your own sin, but the magnitude of the grace that God has given to you. If you come to these things, then what is your response? This is the response. Look at the tears, right? Start with the tears. It says that Peter wept bitterly. He was overcome with remorse for what he had done. True repentance always begins with sorrow. It begins with sorrow, deep sorrow for what you have done to deny Jesus. But listen and be very clear about this. And in the context of what has happened with Judas, we need to understand. Sorrow, mere sorrow is not enough. Tears, mere tears are not enough. Remorse, just simple remorse is not enough. Think about this for a second. Luke doesn't come back to Judas after this incident. But Matthew does after this happens. Matthew comes back to Judas and tells us what happens to, to Judas after 
Jesus was condemned to death by the Roman governor, Matthew tells us that Judas changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, to the elders, and said, this is what he said, I have sinned by betraying, betraying innocent blood. Did you see that? Judas was really upset. Judas even acknowledged that he had sinned. Judas even changed his mind about what he had done. Did you, did you see that? But what didn't Judas change? What couldn't Judas change on his own? His heart. His heart wasn't changed about Jesus. Oh, he said, he said that Jesus was innocent, but he didn't really trust Jesus to do anything about his problem. How do we know? Because where does Judas go to confess his sin? He goes to the high priest. He goes to himself, ultimately, and takes his own life. High priests can't do anything for Judas. They can't atone for his sin, which is why, ultimately, Judas takes his life into his own hands. Now, what about Peter? We're skipping ahead a few weeks, I know, but I probably won't have time to dwell too much on it in Luke 24 when we get there on Easter, when we get to this text. What does Peter do when he learns that Jesus is alive? Does he hide? Last time I saw Jesus, he gave me the look. Better to just to lay low. Right? Kids, oftentimes after you get the look, you know, just practical advice, better to lay low. Is that what Peter does, though? Does he just lay low? When he finds out from the women and they come to report that Jesus had been raised from the dead in Luke 24, it says Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. You see the difference between Judas and Peter? Right? There are differences in their sin, certainly, but that's not the main difference when it comes to the two of them, right? There are differences in their sorrow and their remorse and how they express, right? But, 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 but they are, that's not the main difference. The main difference, the most important difference is that Judas ran to the enemies of Jesus to atone for his sin, something they could never do. But Peter ran to Jesus. And with Jesus, there is forgiveness. As we close, let's remember why. Why is this forgiveness found in Jesus? Why is he the only one who can do this? A number of years ago, um, the CEO of a small uh, promotional agency, handed, they handled speaking engagements, literary rights for Christian entertainers and authors and, and leaders. Uh, the CEO of this small agency made a shocking discovery. The CEO's name was Wes, and he had about a dozen employees who worked for him, um, and his agency had been struggling, so he had hired a, a business advisor, a consultant, to kind of come in and analyze everything. And one night, the consultant, along with his banker and his accountant, said, Wes, we need, to, we need to talk. We need to get together. Do you realize how deeply your company is in debt? And Wes didn't have any idea. Because years ago, he had entrusted the day-to-day -day running of his company to two people who he trusted greatly a chief operating officer, and a, a vice president. They had been with the for, firm for 14 years, for eight years respectively. They were close friends of his. And as the evidence from this consultant and the bankers and the accountants was laid before Wes, it became clear that they had been systematically stealing from the company, plotting behind his back to drain the resources out of the business, to drain clients from the business, so that ultimately, as, their business, as his business failed, they could assume the clients and take over for themselves. They had betrayed him. And initially, at least, they pretended as if they hadn't. They had denied it, right? He had a dozen employees, two of the 12. Wes's story is long. It's detailed. It's involved about how God brought him personally to a place of forgiveness. But it's interesting. I mean, in Wes's 
is clear about this. He's not Jesus, right? He freely admits his own failures and everything in the whole situation. But here's the point, the interesting point. Wes makes, made the decision on the advice of his attorney with everything else that he had, had to deal with and going on not to tie himself up with legal action against the two men. He was advised to use his energy instead to recover the, the business. Now, I don't think that's always the needed path, right? The pursuit of justice is often the, the right thing to do, the appropriate thing to do, even the most loving thing to do in situations like that, even if you still offer forgiveness. But West chose not to, chose not to pursue legal action against the two people who had betrayed him. But here's the thing that's always true. When someone chooses to forego their right to justice, someone still has to pay. (laughs) Someone still has to pay the price. Someone still has to assume the burden of the betrayal, to assume and shoulder the weight of the debt. In this case, that was Wes. Right? By, by saying, I'm not going to pursue action against you, the two people that had betrayed him, what he was saying was, I'll assume that burden. Now, like I said, in all, every human situation, that's not always the needed path, but it is a path that points us exactly to what Jesus did. Because with the debt that is owed to Jesus, in Peter's sin and his denial, someone still needs to pay that price. And that person is Jesus. When you run to Jesus like you should in the midst of your sin, when you seek mercy and grace because of your betrayal and because of your denial, remember this. Someone still has to pay the price for that. Someone still has to assume the burden for that. Someone still has to shoulder the weight of that debt. And that person is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that this is what you have done for us in the midst of our own betrayal and our denial of you. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of this supper that we're about to celebrate and what it means, how it points us to this very truth, the cost and the price that you paid on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that we would be moved, convicted, challenged, and encouraged by what we have heard so that we might be able to glorify you better. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper was instituted on that night when Jesus was betrayed, when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover with them. The Apostle Paul tells us of the incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is what he writes. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is a community celebration of God's people. It is open to all who profess faith in the Jesus that we have proclaimed who have made that profession public before his church and are not barred or prohibited by the church from celebrating this sacrament. If that is you, then welcome to this celebration with us. If that's not something that you say could describe yourself, if you are in a position of still questioning, still trying to figure out the truths about Jesus and the things that we've talked about, then the encouragement, the warning of the Apostle Paul is that you should not participate here with us in the same way. You should not take of the elements and, and, uh, and participate in consuming them.
because that would be, an, uh, that would be a, a blasphemous act. It would be an act that would call down a judgment upon yourself. But that does not mean that there is not a role for you to participate here with us today. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake that you are here. In fact, the encouragement of this is so that you can watch, so that you can look, so that you can see in a visible way God's people participating in this and use it as an opportunity to consider the implications of what this says upon your own soul. Let's pray as the elders come forward. Father, we thank you for this sacrament of which we are about to partake. We ask that you would bless it to us. Set aside this bread and this cup and use them to remind us of the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. Strengthen our faith for your service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.